Welcome to the new revolution in fitness and performance, the Ardella Training Podcast, forging athletic bodies around the world. Here's your host, physical therapist and strength coach, Scott Ardella. What's up, guys? It's Scott, and welcome to episode number 130. We are pretty much going to get right into things here. Just a couple of quick things before this week's episode. First of all, I wanted to pass along something that I really like. I've talked about this before, but if you like coffee like I do, I have a high-performance clean coffee that tastes amazing and is free from pesticides and chemicals. It's a coffee that gives back also as each purchase supplies a person in need with clean water for two years. Again, this is something that I personally use, and I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't. If you like coffee as I do, then this is a coffee you'll definitely want to check out. For more information, go to renegaderoastingco.com forward slash Scott. Again, that's renegaderoastingco.com forward slash Scott. All right, guys, Quinn Hennick is joining me this week on the show, and Quinn is a physical therapist, strength coach. He has a doctorate of physical therapy from the University of Indianapolis. He's the head of rehabilitation for Juggernaut Headquarters and Dark Side Strength. Quinn played football, Division 1AA. As a defensive back, he has competed in track and field, CrossFit, and powerlifting, and currently he trains full-time as an Olympic weightlifter. I think you're going to get a ton of value out of this interview. We talked a lot about his experiences as a physical therapist and his journey into physical therapy. And in the last two years, Quinn has been a PT only for two years, but he's done a lot in the industry and is kind of a hybrid strength coach, physical therapist, as you're going to hear about that. We talk about that unique combination and his unique approach to training and performance or rehab and performance, I should say. So uh, the first half of the interview is talking about physical therapy and his journey there and insights there. And the second half is talking about strength training and his experiences with Olympic weightlifting. And I also shared some of my experiences with Olympic weightlifting. As you may know, Olympic weightlifting is something that I've been into for the last couple of years, really immersed myself into the O-lifts. And uh, I've definitely had my share of struggles in the beginning as they didn't come naturally to me. And the difference between kettlebells and weightlifting is, is very different. There are similarities, of course, but uh, there are some major differences in certainly learning the skills and techniques. And uh, I'll save that for another time. But um, as a matter of fact, I did just write a recent article about my experiences with weightlifting and why I love the Olympic lift so much. And that article's titled, Why I Fell in Love with Olympic Weightlifting and You Can Too. So check that out and uh, you'll learn a little bit more about my approach in that article. So again, I think this is going to be a great interview for you. I think you're going to learn a ton. Quinn shared some amazing insights here and uh, just jam-packed with great information. I'd probably recommend to go back and listen to the interview again. This is one of those interviews that you'll probably need to hear a couple of times to really fully understand the information that Quinn shares with you. So uh, again, I'm glad to have him here. I think this is a great interview session and uh, really, really excited about this one. One last thing here before we dive into the interview. If you haven't heard the new 
podcast, the new Scientific Strength podcast. Make sure to check that out. It's doing really well so far. It's uh, off to a great start in iTunes, and it's a really short show. It's only 10 minutes each episode. And also wanted to let you know that a new show will be coming your way each and every Monday moving forward. So check that out. Again, the Scientific Strength podcast. I think you're going to enjoy it. And uh, with that, let's dive into the interview with Quinn Hennick. All right, guys, get ready for a great session today with Quinn Hennick, strength coach, physical therapist. Quinn, I'm very excited to have you here today. This should be an awesome session. No pressure at all. But we're going to jump right into things. And my first question for you is how long have you been a physical therapist and what led you down that path going from strength coach to PT? First of all, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm super excited to be on with you. I have been, I've only been out of school for two years, so I'm a baby. All right. (laughs) I graduated May 2013 and I've been a licensed practitioner for almost exactly two years. Uh, You know, when I was a strength coach, so I got a bachelor's in science and exercise science from Valparaiso University. And I started at a, at a couple gyms. I was working at a, a velocity sports performance and I, a couple other places like strength coach, some, some work at a local CrossFit gym in Louisville, Kentucky. And, you know, I just felt like I wanted something a little bit more. I felt like there was definitely a knowledge gap. If it, it you know, we dealt with as a as strength coaches, you deal with injuries all the time be it directly or in, shouldn't be directly, right? But indirectly, people get hurt. You know, they're always coming in, I, I feel this, this hurts, et cetera. And for me, you know, as a young 22-year-old strength coach, I didn't know how to deal with that stuff. And I just felt like I was missing that part. And it was thinking about the industry, you know, the, the, the strength coach kind of career and lifestyle. The university setting interested me but I knew that it was, it was a long haul. You know, it's 60 hours a week. It's, you know, you start as an assistant and you, it takes a long time to work your way up and you're just, you're working like a dog. And, and I was definitely willing to put the work in, but I also wanted a little bit more, I guess, scope. And so I started doing some research and it, you know, obviously it wasn't until after I graduated maybe six months down the line that I decided to go back to school uh, for physical therapy. Yeah. Well, so first of all, you've done a lot in two years. I, I, I don't know if I realized that you were only two years out. So you've done, <laughs> you've done a lot in two years, man. So congratulations for that. Well, I appreciate it. Now you talked about some of the gaps. What, what kind of gaps did you see in your knowledge? Was it more anatomy, physiology, biomechanics? What, what type of, of gaps did you need? You know, I think, I think it was all that stuff. I was, I could write a program and I could, teach the, the big lifts, you know, and I could, I could teach accessory barbell lifts and dumbbell lifts and, and teach somebody sprint mechanics, jumping and landing mechanics. I could teach all that. And I knew that stuff, right? It was anything, anything else, warm up, any type of movement prep, any type of, uh, specific preparation to prepare a body part or any, any dealings with, with injury whatsoever. You know, it wasn't, I knew it was well, not within my scope, right. To deal directly with pain, but you still got to deal with that stuff. You've got to learn and know how to regress somebody. And I think that was the issue that I was facing. I just didn't know anything about 
injury or, or rehab or, you know, we call it prehab and we kind of like to think as strength coaches that we know about that stuff, you know, we'll do some Y's and some I's and some T's and some glute activation, you know, some band walks and then we'll, we'll call that good, but that's not really rehab, you know? Right. And so that it just felt like I was really missing the boat and it was, it was hurting my confidence, you know, as a new, as a new strength coach, I was more in the private sector. And so I'm having to talk to parents and athletes who have opinions, you know, this isn't in the, it's not the university setting where I have the sheet, I'm the boss and I'm just, I'm yelling at you, you know, you're going to do what I say. And if you're hurt, then I'll tell you to go to the, the training room, you know, the athletic trainers will take care of you. So I just felt like I was missing that piece and physical therapy, as I was reading, seemed to be the perfect bridge for that. It just, it was almost a no brainer. And I was a, a little upset at myself that I hadn't started earlier you know, I had made that decision in undergrad. I would have saved myself a lot of time and, and money, really, you know, time and energy if I had just gone right to PT school after undergrad. Yeah. Well, I, I went a long route, too. And I, I don't think I've ever talked about this, but I was a business major as an undergrad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. We, so had, then uh, I, we had a couple of those in my class. It was very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it took a couple of years just to get all my science prerequisites and then yep. into PT school from there. Absolutely. So, so how much of what you do right now is uh, rehab versus strength coaching? Where, where does the, um, you know, is it 50, 50 or what, what, uh, tell us about would, who you work with. I, I guess if I want to put a percentage to it, it's still probably 80% rehab. Okay. And most of the people that come to see me are, are hurt or injured or it's very few, maybe the 20% are coming to me or maybe like 15% of that remaining 20 are coming to me with a known movement dysfunction. Like they know they've got something weird going on in their squat, in their sprint mechanics, uh, deadlift, something like that. They're not necessarily in pain or injured, but they're coming to have something, some type of dysfunction corrected. And then a very, very, very smaller percentage is just healthy strength and conditioning athletes. Cause we have, I mean, I have guys for that. You know, I have very knowledgeable strength coaches within my circle that I can refer. So my job is kind of bridging that gap, I guess, is something we'll probably get into a lot. But I do, a, I do quite a bit of hybrid programming. And so I will program the corrective movement prep based on their issue or the rehab. Sometimes it's a post-surgical case, you know, and they're sure. looking to kind of bridge that gap to their permanent, more permanent strength and conditioning program. But I'm kind of in that straight up rehab to kind of intermediate stage as the spectrum shifts from hundred percent rehab to more of a hundred percent performance. And I'll be, you know, all the way up from zero to probably 90%. And then it's time to, to pass them off permanently. So I can tell you that, um, there are a lot of therapists, physical therapists listen to the show and, and young, uh, young guys, and people out there that listen that are interested in physical therapy. Uh, I wonder if you can share your experience in PT school. What was that like? And maybe what was, what were some of your, your big learnings or key insights? Yeah. You know, when I was doing the research as a strength coach before PT school, and I was like you, I had to actually take some prereqs before I went to PT school as well. Cause I, I kind of banked out on taking second year <laughs> of uh, physics and a couple things I didn't want to take, I could still get my bachelor's right and, and right. do that. And then I decided to go to PT school. It's like, oh crap, I need that stuff. 
but you know, doing the research and Googling, you know, sports PT and rehab and weightlifting or rehab and football or something like that, it was like, oh, this is awesome, right? I'm, yeah. I'm going to be like the team doc and <laughs> I'm going to be a, the, the main guy in rehab and, and PT school is going to kind of teach me all this stuff, how to, how to bridge this gap between strength and conditioning. And, you know, PT school is not meant to specialize you. You are, a, uh, you are meant to be a generalist when you come out of PT school. Right. You, you have the same tools to work in an acute rehab setting that you do in a, in a gym, right, or a strength and conditioning orthopedic setting. Right. And so it was a, I think it was eye-opening for me during the whole three-year PT school process of just I had no idea how much I was going to be exposed to right? and, and, and how much how much I was just going to have to learn about everything. And I think, I think it was still a great experience. So even though I'm not going to use a, a pretty good percentage of what I learned in PT school, just simply because I'm not in those different settings, I think it was, it was a great experience to kind of learn how to hone my, my communication skills and my just how to have, how to deal with and, and handle humans, right. you know, in, in right. any capacity. Yeah. And then when you come back and out and I'm like in a gym where the, you know, the patients, their shoulder might be hurt, but they're able to walk in and out and, you know, they're relatively healthy. It was just like, it's easy compared to some of the stuff that the rigors of PT school put you through. So it was different going in than what I had expected. I think the, the first year or so, you know, our first course at university of Indianapolis was anatomy it was the cadaver lab and it was anatomy. So that was pretty straightforward. And then we just had some basic kind of orthopedic courses where we just learn about certain dysfunctions or, or surgeries, you know, the general medicine where we would learn about real basic, uh, you know, cardi cardiology and, and things of that sort, which I kind of got in undergrad. And so I was like, you know, this is rolling. It's a lot of material, for that first semester, but I was like, it's very familiar. That's kind of what I expected. And then you go and you start going to these different settings and actually working with people whose, you know, whose lives are, are changed in a way that you can't really imagine. It was just very, very eye-opening. Tell us about your uh, experiences like with the internships. And so during school, when you had the opportunity to work in clinical settings, what, uh, what was that like for you? Did you get a lot of um, different experiences? Uh, I did. You know, okay. they, they required that. My first experience was in an acute rehab setting, and so that was probably the most rewarding and also very eye-opening as a first as a first setting for an internship. It's you know we're talking spinal cord injuries and, and traumatic brain injuries and strokes and all these things that are very life-altering. So that was right. my first experience, and that was about two months. That was two months long. My next experience was outpatient orthopedics in this in, in this clinic in Washington. It was up by Seattle. Uh, and that was great. You know, it was slower paced. So it was very, very good for a first ortho rotation, right? One patient an hour, <laughs> me and oh, it was wow. great. Wow. Yeah. Me and, uh, <laughs> me and my CI, you know, working a lot of times we'd have maybe a patient and then an opening. So we could always kind of discuss and we could practice and I, it was great. And it was, it was four days a week. It was 10, four, 10 hour shifts. Right. And so we just had a lot of time, you know, and I would have the, a three day weekend in, in June, and that's when upper the, the Northwest is just beautiful. Like it was all sunny and there was no rain. So that was great. I think that was a, a really good segue. 
my next rotation was immediately after. That was probably a week after it was in Boston. And so I went coast to coast there. That was at the Boston Medical Center, which is a, a level five or whatever the highest rank is trauma center. Right. And they were one of those places that takes anybody, you know, no insurance doesn't matter. You're, you're going to go to the Boston Medical Center and get treated because it was a teaching hospital. Yeah. And so that was another very similar to my first rotation. That was just an eye-opening experience, you know, being in the, in the ICU and the CCU and the NICU and all these very, very traumatic things. My last rotation was in San Francisco at a place called Active Care Physical Therapy. And that was about as different as my first ortho rotation as it could have been. That was literally 40 people on the caseload. You know, you're as the PT, you're kind of going around and you've got, you're doing 15 minutes of manual here, 15 here, 15 there, maybe 30 with this patient. And then the rest of the time, the patients are with the trainers. You know, we've got three, maybe six to eight trainers on the floor, two or three patients that are under your care as I'm working with manually with another one. And then, so that, that dynamic was just incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was definitely way far on the other end of the spectrum than I was, than I knew that I wanted to be in long-term, but it also gave me very, very good skills as far as managing that type of workload. You know, it was, it was a great way to end my physical therapy career and kind of prepare me. Yeah. So it sounds like all of your experiences were really, uh, good experiences. They were, man, it was awesome. My internships were really good. I, I decided to travel for all of them. You know, I made that decision. It was a very expensive one, but I think that it's starting (laughs) to, it's, it had really paid off because I, I really got to meet some amazing people and I got to work in some really cool places. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I mean, you know, you really do come out as a generalist, a fundamentalist, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's through those clinical experiences that really start to shape you know, your direction and your learnings coming out, I think. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Our, our curriculum was very neuro based. And I actually, even to this day, I kick myself because I kind of ignored that. You know, I went into PT school as this kind of meathead, like, oh, you know, ortho sports guy. I want to be the, the guru with my hands. I want to be the best manual sports therapist, all this stuff that I had no idea what that even meant, you know? And, and so whenever I were in the neuro courses and my professor's like, you know, every patient's a neuro patient, every patient's got a nervous system. I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blowing it off. Right. And I'm all, yeah. and I'm thinking now the way I, the way I practice now is so heavily influenced by the nervous system. I'm just like, wow, I, I wish that I would have just stayed in picked my professor's brains day after day after day. And there were just some times that I didn't do that. And so that's a, that's definitely a regret that I have. Yeah. The nervous system and the neurophysiology is just fascinating stuff. Oh, it's I mean, unbelievable. It <laughs> yeah. Um, do you still, do you do a lot of manual techniques now? Do I do a lot? I don't. Yes. Okay. I don't do a lot. I definitely do some. I, I've tried to keep some uh, mobilization and manipulation skills. I don't do a ton of, of neck, any type, anything over, um, a grade four in the neck, especially the upper cervical. I don't do that. Right. Uh, I will, I'll, I'll manipulate the thoracic spine. Um, again, the lower back, I'm still kind of, I got the skills, but I, you know, I don't see a need for it as much as I maybe thought I did in PT school. I'll definitely use some type of active release stuff with my hands. I'll, I'll, I'll get the tools out every now and then. 
but I use that stuff. It, it's certainly not a, this is going to be a 15 minute block of this manual. This is going to be a 15 minute block of this. It's going to be, I'm going to use these tools as a way to get my patient to move the way I want them to move without their symptoms. I'm going to use these tools. I'm going to use a mulligan mobilization belt on somebody's hip to create some type of neural input to make hip flexion not as painful. And once I do that, and hopefully that takes one or two minutes, then I'm going to do what I do, which is more positionally based, um, we'll call it corrective, quote unquote, corrective exercises, but where we're addressing position, we're addressing uh, neural tone, et cetera. So that stuff is definitely in my repertoire. It just, I just don't use it in a way that I, that I think I'm changing any type of structure in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So, so I wanted to ask you, um, have you taken any key or, or breakthrough, I guess is a better word, uh, learning courses in the past year or two since you've been out? Anything you know, yeah. what's influenced me the most, I've taken two PRI courses, the Postural Restoration Institute, and that's where everybody asked me all the kind of breathing resets and different types of positionally, positionally based postural drills that I have been known to use. That's where I get most of that stuff. And I think that's been, I think that's been a breakthrough in the sense of the concepts that are taught, the, the concepts of ribcage position as it relates to the shoulder function or the concept of pelvic position as it relates to hip function and how to integrate those things. Now, I've only taken, for anybody who's have any kind of experience with PRI, taking two courses means very, very little. So again, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface. That's a whole other school of thought. But the, the concepts that I've taken from those courses has, has been really amazing. And we're talking about influencing the nervous system, and it definitely does just that. I was lucky enough as part of my rotations to have clinical instructors that, that had a lot of manual skill. Uh, and so I was taught a lot of the, the active release stuff, or we call it mobilization with movement, because ART is kind of a trademark thing. I have not taken an ART course uh, my CI in Washington was, was very good with manual mobilizations, even though in Washington manipulation was illegal. And so we couldn't, we could practice positions, but then we couldn't thrust. Right. And so I right, kind of right. took some of my knowledge back and, and practiced on my classmates when we, when we got <laughs> back to school. But, wow. you know, as, as far as the courses that I've taken, I would, I would definitely say PRI has been the most groundbreaking and I've done some some not for CEU courses like I went to Charlie Weingroff's uh, training, training equals rehab seminar. Yes. I've been to a lot of I, the IFAST, Mike Robertson and Bill Hartman uh, material stuff is amazing. I've done a lot of that. And so these just kind of traveled around, you know, right, and I've tried right. to shadow certain people, whether it's a kind of a formalized seminar or not. I understand you you use the FMS in your approach. Is that correct? I definitely, right as of now, I definitely use the concepts of the FMS as far as how to tie in mobility and stability, how to analyze movement. As far as the, the seven-test screen of the FMS okay. is not necessarily a, a part of my practice at this point. I've done, just in my experience, I've had the opportunity to literally do probably at this point thousands of screens. And so I've I've just kind of molded the concepts and some of the patterns of the actual screen 
into my practice, but it's definitely, I don't have, like, I don't screen everyone right? in right. the sense of the FMS. So let's talk about that. What, what is the key to assessment with, with anyone that you're working with? Uh, so to me, if, if somebody's coming in with pain, my job is to figure out which position or pattern reproduces the pain. And then can we change the pattern or can we change the position? And does that change your symptoms? for better or for worse. Right. And that's, that's the starting point, right? If I make, if, if you have back pain and I make your back pain worse by positioning your pelvis in a certain way or making you move in a certain way, well, then at least I know that that's the road that we don't go down, right? right? We avoid right. that movement pattern. We go somewhere else. In, this, in, the, in the case of assessing just movement alone, I think the FMS is a, is a great starting tool, but we've got to kind of break it down because uh, the FMS is a screen. It's not an assessment. Right, right. Right. The overhead squat is a integral part of, of my whole process, but it is just one movement. And if anybody sees an individual overhead squat who can't overhead squat to depth or their heels come up, you cannot make an assumption at that point. You don't know if they have tight hips. You don't know if they have tight ankles because you haven't tested that stuff. Right. All you know is that they can't overhead squat. And so if I'm going to take somebody and I'm going to have them overhead squat, the, the heels elevated is, a, is a, a perfect regression, right? But everybody kind of goes at the ankles. If somebody can overhead squat or somebody can't overhead squat with their heels flat, but then you hike their heels up and they can, everybody wants to point to tight ankles. But elevated heels does two things. It gives you dorsiflexion. But it also gives you an anterior weight shift. It gives you a counterbalance. So you are able to sit down and back much better. In an ideal world, your abdominals and your pelvic floor and your diaphragm work as your counterbalance, right? Right. And so you can take somebody who can't overhead squat with flat feet but can with elevated heels. But then when you screen their ankles, their ankles move completely fine. They have all the mobility potential in the world in the ankles. So it had to have been something else, right? And that's what I don't think a simple screen or just one movement pattern tells you. So you've got to then break that down further. Can they air squat? What if they bring their arms down? Can they squat with flat feet? If they can, perhaps they had mobility up top, or maybe they just can't integrate the fact that they have their arms over their head. It changes the lever of the, of the trunk. It requires more trunk stability. And then they can't overhead squat, but they can air squat, right? But at least at that point, you've essentially cleared the lower body. If somebody can squat where I'm looking at depth, uh, can they reach below 90 degrees, right? And this is all, this is all symptom-free movement. Can they, sure. can they squat below 90 degrees? Do their knees track in, this is going to be a little subjective, in the same plane from start to finish? Now, there is a buffer zone as far as the knees. If the knees go a little bit in, if the kneecap is slightly inside of the big toe, I'm not so concerned if that's where they started. I'm more concerned with change during the movement. Does the knee path change in the middle? If it doesn't, if it starts middle and finishes in the same path, I'm good. Same with the feet. I know with the FMS, we standardize toes forward, but that's not necessarily the normal biomechanics of a squat, right? And toes out is a little bit more normal for most people's hip anatomy. And so I'm okay if people toe out during my overhead squat screen but what I want to see is that that foot stays in the same spot from beginning, middle to end. Right. I'm looking at, obviously looking at the spinal curves, same idea. Does the spine, I'm not cueing, right? If they want to be overextended at this point, that's fine. If they want to be 
you know, it's hard to flex when you're in an overhead squat, but whatever, if the, I want to see the, the spine beginning, middle and end stay the same. If somebody can do all of those things, they, they can pretty much, and then overhead squat, ass to grass, pain-free, they can pretty much do whatever you're going to ask of them. And so at that point, your movement assessment is, is pretty simple. You can almost just start coaching at that point. <laughs> but very few people are going to exhibit that type of movement potential overhead squat ability. Yeah. So, so, uh, no. the, so the overhead squat is really the gold standard for just looking at quality movement. Is that kind of what you're saying? You know, it's, it's tough to say gold standard because there's not, a, there's not necessarily a frontal plane or transverse plane demand. There's not a, there's not a loading demand. But as, as far as a place to start, that is a really, really good one. Right, right. But it just gives you it, – it, it just is or it isn't. Either somebody can overhead squat or they cannot. My, you just can't make assumptions. No, you've got to break it down to an air squat. You've got to break it down to a heels elevated air squat. What if somebody can't air squat with their feet flat, but if you put a kettlebell in, the, in their hands, they can gobble squat, and the squat looks immaculate. It looks amazing. What, what did you do there? You gave them a counterbalance. That's right. the same thing as, the, as a heel lift, right? Right, right. You've got to kind of break that down into a, what about a quadruped rock back drill where somebody's on, we'll say, forearms, knees, and they can rock all the way back and they can sit on their heels and keep their spine completely motionless. <laughs> right. But when they were on their feet, they look like a, a baby giraffe, right? They're like a spaghetti yeah. noodle. And you screen their ankles and their ankles were fine too. So where, where's the disconnect? And I think that's the kind of this hierarchy or this logistical process of movement. The screen is great. You know, the screen is a, is a first step. The assessment is breaking the patterns, further regressing the patterns down to actually get to the root of the problem. Is it mobility or is it stability? And that's, what a, that's an assessment. Let me go back to what you said maybe five minutes ago about that, but going back to the knees now. Yeah. So if the knees start in a little bit of a, of a valgus position, so the valgus is, is the knees coming in for listeners, if they start there and they stay there, they don't increase as someone is squatting, did you say that that would be acceptable? It, as long as they're not excessively going into a valgus position. <laughs> this, and this is where we get kind of subjective, right? Right, right. There's, there's definitely that degree of buffer zone, though, because pushing the knee outside of the plane of the foot creates just as much abnormal tibial torsion as the knee coming in. It just so happens that it's easier, if we're going to relax our muscles, the knees are going to dive in before they get shoved way, way, way out, right? So, right. And, and we know that a mechanism for ACL tear is coming down and boom, one valgus knee and snap. But there's, that is much, much different. The knee traveling inside of the plane of the foot, completely inside where there's actual hip motion or change in the rotational angle of the hip is much, much different than a little bit of wiggle in the knees, in or out, especially when you're looking at it bilaterally. If you see a little wiggle, if that knee comes in, the kneecap is, you know, the outside of the kneecap is still over the big toe, but the inside of the kneecap is maybe inside the foot, and it's happening on both sides. To me, that's a, that's a non-issue. That, that athlete is, is uh, exhibiting a buffer zone, right? And it's, it's, that's within a zone that they can manage because those things are going to happen in sport, right? right. We can't, when, we're, when we're coaching landing mechanics, 
I, I think another a mistake is like, let, don't let me hear your feet. You know, don't make any noise with your feet. Well, when you land in a sport, you've got to land with force so that you can go back up, right? You can't land like a butterfly and expect to create any type of power. And so, and I take that kind of with, with many different movements is that there's a buffer zone and this goes with the spine too, <laughs> right, right? right? Overextension, we all know that, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, but flexion of the spine under load is problematic. We know this, but why does that make overextension better? Right? right. There's 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 a buffer zone in the middle of, of safe loading, whether that be kind of left of the curve or right, being a little bit of flexion beyond normal, quote unquote, normal curvature, or a little bit of overextension, quote unquote, and the extremes of either cause issues. Right, right. Right. But there's this there's this gray area that an athlete can stabilize, reflexively stabilize. And I think that's that's kind of part of it, of my approach is I'll teach that person to find, we'll call it neutral, quote unquote neutral or the middle, but then teach them how to control either end of their buffer zone. And it's just movement variability. I just want to give the athlete options. The more options they have, the less risk, the less injury management or injury risk. Not to beat a dead horse here with the, uh, the knees, but uh, yeah. what's a coaching cue that you like if you do see a potential valgus issue and, and you think oh, it is problematic. This, so this is a great discussion. Knees out is a fine cue, okay. but it's just that it's a cue to correct a fault. I think what had happened was knees out became its own type of squat. Like <laughs> right. it was this, it was this toes forward knees outside of the plane of the foot, unnatural tibial torsioned squat. It's just a, simply a misinterpretation a misinterpretation of a cue but it became its own entity. And so then this knees out thing became like taboo. No, I'm still, if somebody's knees dive in, in the moment, yelling knees out is to correct a movement fault in that moment. It's not a new way to squat. You still just want your knee to track over your foot. The knee's just going to hinge naturally. You're going to have, you know, triple flexion of the hip, knees and ankles. Everything's just going to hinge. It doesn't need, you don't need to excessively or consciously force your knees into an unnatural position, which is out, right? I think that's the, the misinterpretation of the cue. All, all, whenever somebody puts a band around somebody's knees to kind of address that situation, the RNT, Greg Cook talks a lot about that, reactive neuromuscular training. Right. The band is not there so that you excessively push your knees outside of your foot against the band. The band is there so that you can learn how to resist going in. Your knees should still be over your feet. Exactly, right. So when you, t- when you take the band off, your knees stay over your feet. It's just easier for you to resist them going in, right? You- the, it, and so that's the same with a, a cue like arch, you know, arch hard, arch, arch, arch through your lower back, right? It's to fix a flexion moment under load. But this hyperextended squat or like somebody's trying to mimic a west side geared squat with a, with a super, super hard arch, is not normal biomechanics either, and it can lead to just as many problems as, as flexion. They're just different problems. The same with cueing the shoulder blades to be down and back when we're trying to go overhead. That completely changes the mechanics of any type of overhead position. The shoulder blades have to move. Down and back is a cue to avoid unnatural shrugging, right, or, or popping the shoulder forward. But it's not a, it's not a new movement. And it's, so it's, it's this, the cue is just a relationship between the coach and the athlete. 
if I yell peanut butter at, at somebody and they squat the way that I want them to squat, then peanut butter is the new cue. It doesn't really matter. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Knees out right. is going to resonate with somebody in the perfect way. When I say knees out to somebody, they're going to go exactly where I want them to go. If I say that to somebody else, they're going to do something different. That's an over-exaggeration or it's, it's completely not what I had planned, right? The same with any cue. And so you've got to just use what works with the athlete, but it doesn't become its own movement. Got it. If that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. One last question, then we're going to move on here. But um, do you like bands for that, for the knee issues? I, I rarely use them. Okay. I think that you can just teach. You, you can structure your movement prep in a way that teaches the athlete that those positions with their own body weight rather than having to throw a band around them. I, I think that if I put somebody in supine and I teach them how to pull, so we'll say 90-90, right, feet, feet against the wall. If I can teach them how to kind of pull with their hamstrings and lift their tailbone a little bit, exhale hard, use their abdominals, and learn how to breathe and brace in that position, and I can take them to their side and we can do some type of, of quick little little clamshell in the same position though feet spread out on the wall they're going to feel their glute fire but we're using the abs we're using the breath or we're exhaling i can put them in quadruped and have them do some rock backs or have them go into bear position which is when they lift their knees an inch or two off the floor and they're just rocking back past 90 degrees and forward and back and they're so they're feeling this squatting pattern in all of these different movements and i can put them in half kneeling and we can do front foot elevated half kneeling split squats Right, and they're gonna, you know, we're cueing, or maybe I don't have to knee right over the foot, or you know, the ankle right over the big toe. So they they feel this position in all in in different developmental sequences. And then a goblet squat is the next progression. You know, we put a kettlebell in their hand, and they can just sit straight down, sit straight up, stand up, sit straight down, and they can just feel their joints hinging naturally, right, without me having to cue. By the time we're ready to get to the barbell, they, they've already felt a squatting pattern in so many different positions. Right. They, there's no more teaching. It's only yelling if they get lazy. Like, oh, <laughs> stay tight. Come on. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's no more teaching them how to squat. At that point, they've got it. And so I think that's where we don't necessarily need the band anymore. Now, the band can add any type of input or resistance to any of those exercises. So it can just add a little bit extra. But as far as a standalone teaching tool... Not as much, not as much. I do like the overhead squat correction, though, where the band is pulling, it's attached to a rack, it's pulling forward, and the athlete is pulling the band back over their head as they squat down. Right. If, if, the, if the listeners can kind of picture, I think you can just search RNT, reactive neuromuscular training overhead squat in YouTube, and you should see a ton of videos. I, I do think that's very, very effective. And you like that more for kind of the, the spinal stabilization, the spine position, staying upright during the squat? I think or? it's just the pattern. The pattern. I okay. think people who's, who have the mobility potential, and I, mobility I define as kind of movement potential. Like you've got all the hardware in the world. Your structure is great, but you can't necessarily demonstrate it. So, for example, it would be somebody who can rock their heat in the quadruped, rock their heels way back to their feet, keep their spine neutral. They can palm the floor with a toe touch. They've got, you know, 90 plus degrees active straight leg raise. But when they go to overhead squat, they look very inflexible. That's a drill that gives that person a little bit of feedback and also a little bit of support because you can, you can hang on the band a little bit and all of a sudden they can drop straight down into an overhead squat and they can feel that triple flexion pattern with their arms over their head. It's much, much easier at that point 
for them to know what it's supposed to feel like without the bands. Okay. Right. Cause at, le- at least they felt it. So I do really, really, I love that variation. All right. Let me go back to a point you said in the beginning of the show, and that was talking about hybrid programming. Can you tell us mm-hmm. what that is and, and how you approach that? Yeah. You know, I, I make the point of trying not to be the jack of all trades and master of none. So <laughs> I always, I still want to be the, the rehab guy. I am and by no means trying to kind of be like a one-stop shop. You know what I mean? I'll, you know, I'll rehab you and I'll write your strength and conditioning program and I'll be your coach and all this stuff. It was kind of what I said is that gray area, right? So, for example, if, if I have a weightlifter in the sport of weightlifting, snatch, clean, and jerk, yeah. who has rotator cuff surgery, I'm going to take them through the protocol, the surgical protocol, as if, just as if any therapist would. I'm going to follow the protocol. Okay. We're going to, you know, Natural healing process. We can't beat Mother Nature, right? But then my job at that point, instead of just clearing them after four months, all right, well, go find a coach. You know, you're good. Go lift weights. I have to then kind of ease them back into the barbell. And so I've got to pick the correct accessory movements or regressions of the, their competition lifts or if it's a football player, whatever big lifts they're going to be doing, start to work those progressions in with the science-based approach of specificity, progressive overload, uh, fatigue management, all these things that are staples of any strength and conditioning program, right. but we're still rehabbing, right? And so it's, it's that dynamic of, of balancing corrective exercise and performance exercise where I think is uh, where we miss, we kind of miss the boat. And it's been my, that's kind of where I'm headed, I think. Yeah. So that, that's a really good answer. And I think that actually clears up a question I had for you earlier. And that is, what do you think is unique about the physical therapist strength coach kind of hybrid? And I think you really just answered that. And it, yeah, I, I think I'm really excited about it. I mean, I think it's going to be just the dynamic of strength coaches, not thinking that PTs don't know anything about training and, you know, they're just going to give you a, th- a pink TheraBand and give you the same three sets of 10 exercises. And then the, from the PT standpoint of the strength coach, oh, he's just a meathead and, you know, he's very dangerous and he's going to hurt his guys. And, you know, that athlete's not ready. And I just see this clash all the time. And to me, the physical therapist and the, the strength coach should be the closest relationship. And the athletic trainers is obviously very similar. Just the closest relationship in this whole thing. You've got the surgeon you know, on, on one end and you've got the sport coach, like the actual position coach on the other end, but in the middle is where the athlete spends most of its time training, either training or rehab. So those entities have to have a relationship question here. I'm just, um, thinking about a lot of things you said here, but, uh, so I, I'm ju- I, I, you know, yeah, this is just what I do. I jump around. I apologize. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, but so I'm wondering, but before I ask you about your training, I want to move on to mm. kind of your training approach as well. And, um, but I'm wondering what advice you have for new physical therapists that are listening or experienced physical therapists or those that are interested in physical therapy, what advice would you offer them? As a kind of a first year, I mean, I'm, I'm still there, you know, I'm, I'm two years out, so I'm still that guy. And I, I think I can bring a lot of insight. I took the path less traveled and actually the path that our professors told us not to take, which was to go into private practice straight out of school. Okay. It was, I got very lucky. So 
you know, I, I found a gym or I found a, a couple performance places that had just open office space and we did a profit share. So I didn't pay any rent and it was just a percentage of my revenue. And so it was the ideal situation. Had I had to pay rent or, or build some type of business structure, it would have been obviously a no-go as a first, as a first year grad. But that's also a mistake because I have no, I had nobody to bounce ideas off of. I had nobody to push me or to mentor me. And so I actually got a part-time job at a more traditional orthopedic clinic, and I, and I had just that. And so my advice is whether you think that your coworkers are uh, you know, experienced enough or you feel like they're up to par to, to what the way you practice, find a mentor. Find a mentor in your area. It doesn't matter if you have to drive an hour, hour and a half, two hours to go shadow somebody on the weekends or at the end of the week, or you take a vacation day, you know, half day and you go shadow somebody, find somebody who can mentor you and then bounce ideas off of, off of colleagues, right? Have discussions. If you don't have this type of meeting in your clinic, make it. Yeah. You know, go to your, go to your supervisor and say, you know, I I think we should put on in services every week or every, you know, once a month and I'll, I'll make the structure of the schedule. But You've got to have that learning environment because I've seen and I, you know, I, I kind of fell into that trap during small pockets of my short career as well is that you, you get so bogged down and just trying not to kill people. Like you want to get everybody better, but then you have a full schedule and then a lot of first year grads have a family and you kind of get bogged down and it just becomes punching the card. Right. right. And then right. you're, you're a year in and all of a sudden you're like, man, I still don't, you know, I don't know as much as I did even coming out of PT school because that stuff's not even fresh in my mind and I haven't learned anything in the past year. I've just been working. Right, right. And so there's always these opportunities and it doesn't have to be a $400 continuing education seminar either. Yeah. You've got, you've got colleagues and there's the way that social media is set up now, there's always a way to get in touch with a more experienced mentor and, and just have, find somebody to take, take you under their wing. As far as going to PT school or, or somebody interested in PT school, I would recommend that you go and shadow different PTs and don't make the same mistake that I made and just go shadow in outpatient clinics. I had maybe, you know, a total of 10 hours in a hospital, just enough to, to put my application, you know, to make the cut to, for PT school, go to every single physical therapy setting that you can possibly go to. And that includes a nursing home, go to a hospital, Go to an acute rehab center. Go to sports physical therapy. Go to surgical outpatients where you're just going to see joint replacements. Get a feel for what the, what the profession is truly, truly like. And I think that will give you uh, a better picture going in. You won't be so surprised the way I was. Yeah, I think it's the, the, both, both of those things are great advice. And I'll just follow up with one thing. So when I was a, a new f- therapist coming out, I worked in a, a private practice clinic and ended up kind of running that clinic soon after mm. within a few months. And I, I really didn't have the mentor around. So what I did, I was working four days a week. As you mentioned, you did in one of your rotations. I ended up doing one day a week per diem work in a large academic institution, again, doing outpatient orthopedics. And I had several mentors in that setting and it accelerated my learning like unbelievable for that time period. And, um, so I think that's great advice. You know, if that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah. You know, those opportunities seem, it's like, Oh, I got, I got, just got lucky. You know, I fell into this, but you, if you make that happen again, like I said, the way that social media, the way that everybody's so connected these days, there is always somebody within a reasonable distance that you can get to. 
that you can learn from. And who knows, you know, maybe if it's even a, a, a little a Skype assessment or a Skype appointment yeah. that you make with somebody where you're just 10 minutes and you're just bouncing ideas off of. We, people love to teach. Yeah. And experienced <laughs> therapists want to teach us young guys. And we, <laughs> and we want, you know, we want to learn. And they, they, want, they want us to know what they know, you right. know, the, all these right. years. So they, people are willing to teach. We just got to ask. Absolutely. Great stuff. Great advice, Quinn. So let's switch gears a little bit. I'm sure we're going to circle back to uh, some of the physical therapy talk here as we're yeah. moving through. But I do want to talk to you about your training. And I know that you uh, you started out in powerlifting, as I understand it. And now you're pretty much into Olympic weightlifting. Talk about that transition from powerlifts to the Olympic weightlifting and, and why Olympic lifting for you. Yeah. So I just kind of go, I'll backtrack a little bit more. I played yeah. football in, in college. So I played football in high school and college and the snatch and clean and jerk were always a part of my training. And so that was, you know, and I played football obviously before high school. And so I had, I probably started the lifts even in eighth grade. We were, we were kind of practicing, throwing, throwing the bar around. I got lucky. I had some strength coaches that, that knew what they were doing. And so I had maybe eight years, eight to 10 years of experience with the lifts. They were always my favorite part of training. But when I, when I graduated from college and I was feeling really beat up from a, a football career that was obviously over, uh, I wanted something new. And so I actually switched gears even before I got into powerlifting, I switched gears and I did cross competitive CrossFit for about a, uh, maybe 10 months. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, quickly realized that I'm a, I'm a fast switch guy. So I played defensive back in college. Uh, I was always a sprinter and I just learned very quickly that anything over an eight minute time cap in CrossFit was just the death of me. And I didn't have, I didn't, I knew it was always going to be a weakness and I didn't have the, obviously didn't have the capacity, but I also didn't want to train that system to get any better. I had, it was awful, right? I didn't enjoy that. And so then I switched to powerlifting and somebody was like, oh, you know, why don't you do, there's a powerlifting meet in May. It's something I hadn't even trained for. I think maybe I did starting strength, like linear periodization three days a week for a couple months. And I did uh, my first powerlifting meet. And I was like, this is awesome because I'm not, I don't feel like I'm going to puke. Right? <laughs> right. Just, I just squat and I bench and I deadlift. This is just like football. This is great. Yeah. Uh, and so I did, I only did a few powerlifting meets. And that was probably over the course of another year that okay. I did that. And I, I also felt like that was missing something in that sport. There was just, I was always the guy who was kind of fast and, and springy, you know, and I, I wasn't getting that in powerlifting. And the bench press, honestly, I, I'm just an awful bench presser. And I always had that. In, in college and in high school, I never liked it. I always wanted to jump and, and squat and clean and sprint. And I never want, I didn't want to bench because I was just kind of a weak little dude, like a DB, you know what I mean? And right, it was never right. something I was good at. And so when I powerlifting, it was really holding me back. When I, when I competed in something, I had to compete in something, obviously like coming out of college, I was like, I need something, but if I'm going to compete, I want to be reasonably good. And the, literally the bench was going to hold me back. And so I kind of went back and I'm thinking like, you know, weightlifting was the absolute obvious choice. We had done competitions in high school, back in high school, weightlifting competitions are like the clean, which is just a power clean, the bench and the 40, bench squat and a 40 yard dash. So they somehow score all those things. But the clean was always my favorite part. The clean, the snatch and clean jerk was always my favorite part of training up through college. And so I did my first weightlifting meet without training again. Right. And then uh, that was in the summer of 2010. And since that point, I've kind of never looked back and I've 
I had a coach, I had a, I had a coach then, but we got serious about it then. And I've, it's been for, it's been five years now and that's been my sole focus. It's been, it's been full-time, uh, training for, for the sport of weightlifting, snatch wow. clean and jerk. Nice. How many meets have you been in so far? I've, I've competed in probably 21, 22 meets. I've done, I've done quite a few competitions in, the, in that time. Fantastic. Congratulations. That's awesome. Well, oh, thanks. It's, it's, I mean, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a very addicting sport. It's very, uh, it takes a toll. It, it absolutely does. I don't do this. Like I think people kind of scratch their heads when they, when they see me training the way that I do. And they're like, you're a PT. Like you're, you're, you're hurt. Right. Like this, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. It hurts. This isn't, this is not for health. Right. But I, yeah. I just really enjoy it. And I, the sport is, is unlike anything else that I've ever kind of experienced. It's this team atmosphere. If you've got people around you training with you, but it's this mental uh, challenge of an individual sport. You can train for three or four months for one meet, yeah, and in in six lifts, it's over. It's you know, and you yeah. you either have all the regrets in the world, or you feel like you it was all worth it. And it's there's no better feeling. Yeah, you don't get. It, just like in football, you don't get three hours of a game to kind of work your way in. You're either on that day or you're not. Right. You know, and it's, I think a lot of people actually kind of quit and they drop out of the sport because of that. They just, the mental drain of that just kind of takes its toll. Yeah. I, I love it personally. I mean, I've just gotten into it in the past couple of years. I've been pretty immersed in it myself. I have not competed yeah. yet. I mean, I would be, you know, competing as a master, um, but I'm not going to rule that out. You know, I mean, I, I definitely need to get my strength levels up. A little bit more, <laughs> but, uh, well, here's, here's how it. I look at the people ask me that all the time. You know, when should I compete? Or I'm like, when are you going to compete? And they're like, Oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. You're never going to feel ready. You're never, ever, ever, ever going to feel ready. I don't even now, like I'm working, I train for the American open and I'm training for nationals. I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. If you can snatch and clean and jerk the empty barbell, you can compete in a meet. Right. And so I think that competing sooner than later is much, much better because you're always going to put it off. And before you know it, you're never going to do one. Yeah. These little local meets that, that pop up everywhere, there's a lot of CrossFit gyms that host sanctioned USAW meets now. Right. They're, really, they're really cool. The atmosphere is very, very – has a very community-based feel. Everybody's very, very supportive. And there's usually not any, you know, say for maybe one or two people, any type of high-level lifting. Everybody's an intermediate or everybody's a beginner and – everybody's cheering everybody on. You know what I mean? And so, like, if, I mean, if you're tech, if you feel, if you're so new that you feel like you're going to literally drop a barbell on your head in front of everyone, then you wait, you know, you hone your skill, get a coach. But if you've, if you've got the technique and you just feel like you're just, you know, not strong enough, then that's not, to me, that's not an excuse. You're going to do one and you're going to see how awesome it is. And you're going to be like, Oh, I I can do this. Yeah. Right. And I think that's going to be the, that'll be the catalyst. So I would, Scott, I would, encourage you <laughs> in the place. next six months, you know, give yourself time, yeah. but I would, I would definitely do one. Well, look, look, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, you know, right now, I mean, I definitely feel like my technique is, is there good enough to compete. It was yeah. just like, I felt like, well, I wanted to be at, you know, a little bit higher level of strength, but I think you're absolutely right. You need to just get in and, you know, I'm pretty structured. I'm very structured with my programming. You know, good. I'm like obsessed with, with the technical aspects of Olympic lifting and, uh, Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm going to look into some local meets and get, get it going. So I yeah, it's it. <laughs> good. I'm excited. I think that's, and that, that's a, that's a mistake I think that people can make, but also jumping in to heavyweights too quickly. I think right. that's probably the biggest mistake I see with people getting into the sport 
is they just want to put weight on the bar. They want to put weight on the bar, and it's, it's not the same as straight-up strength training. The snatch and the clean and jerk don't have the same progressive overload principles that a squat, a bench, and a deadlift do because of the technical aspect of yes. the lifts. Yes, you're absolutely right. And so you're going to hit, you know, if you're, if you're just packing on the, the pounds or the kilos with crappy technique, you're, you're going to hit a plateau really quickly, and that's <laughs> not going to be one that you bust through. Yeah. Because your technique is absolutely 100% going to be the limiting factor. And now you've got this, now you're frustrated because you can't get any better, but you've honed these these bad movement patterns, right? So you got these bad habits that are now ingrained. So I think that's the biggest mistake in the beginning is hone your technique. The weight will come. Your body has to adapt. If you're doing a movement over and over and over, it will get stronger within that movement. Right. I think really you just have to be committed to it. And totally. uh, this is something I've actually thought a lot about just in the past couple of weeks. And so Olympic lifts for me, it's a thing that has been hard. You know, like I don't yeah. think I had the talent to learn it really quick. And I've seen other athletes learn Olympic lifts and be good with Olympic lifts really fast. That wasn't me. So I've had to put in a lot of hard work and really focus, but it does come. I mean, it's just like you said, you know, I mean, you, you got to persist and you don't quit. I mean, if you're committed to something, you gotta, you gotta stick with it. Eventually it will come. Absolutely. And the sport now with the kind of in the intrusion, I shouldn't say intrusion, because CrossFit has absolutely helped USAW and, and the sport of weightlifting. But with CrossFit, there's now so many more barbell clubs who have legitimate, like some USAW coaches, some legitimate coaches kind of are housing themselves in these different gyms, right? And so to, to find a weightlifting coach now is so much easier than it was three to five years ago. And so if you, now, now it sounds like you kind of write your own program coach yourself, which is amazing. If you don't, if somebody doesn't have the background, they don't feel comfortable Go on the USAW website and search for a club, and I'd be willing to bet that there's one closer to you than you think because they're starting to pop up a lot more now. Yeah. I think the, the membership of USAW is six times what it was uh, three or four years ago. Wow. It's something ridiculous. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. And CrossFit has a lot to do with that. Well, that, that's great because I was going to ask, my next question was, what do you recommend for people to find a good qualified coach? And there it is. So you just answered that. Yeah. <laughs> so, go to USAW. Yeah. All, all the uh, sanctioned and certified quote-unquote clubs will be there they should have the coaches if the gym has a website phone numbers emails all that stuff so that's where i would go yeah so i've been fortunate what one last thing about olympic weightlifting i've been fortunate to you know take uh, workshops with glenn pendelay that was my mm. first one uh greg everett and uh danny camargo and you know anybody that is listening that has an opportunity to go and learn from from guys like that like jump on that opportunity because you'll learn so much in a seminar, um, as, as you know, so that's an all-star cast, man. You got it lucky. <laughs> yeah. We got on the West coast. I would say Sean Waxman yeah, yeah. is, is another really big name. A guy named John thrush. He's up in Washington. I don't know if he does as many seminars now, but he's amazing. Uh, Jim Smith's in San Francisco. There's just, I mean, gosh, man, that's there's a, there's a lot right of great coaches out there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so that brings me to my next uh, point here. Uh, so you work with Juggernaut Training Systems. Tell us about that partnership, how that came about. You're doing some amazing writing there. And uh, how did that develop? It's been unbelievable, Scott. <laughs> I mean, that's you had said something about, you know, you've done a lot in the last two years. It has, the, the, the Juggernaut connection has been integral in that. It's been absolutely amazing. Chad and I, and, and you had a, had a question about how Dark Side Strength came about. So this is all going to be related. Yeah, yeah. We'll just kind of backtrack that. So I'm, 
obviously uh, affiliated with Juggernaut Training Systems. I also have a kind of a satellite thing going with what's called Dark Side Strength. And Dark Side Strength is between me and a guy named Ryan Brown, who's, who's a strength coach based out of Louisville, Kentucky. And he and I coach together. So I knew him before PT school was even a thought in my head, actually. Okay. And so I went to PT school. He continued to coach and actually started owning a gym. We kept talking. We were good friends. And so he started this entity called Dark Side Strength, which was kind of this hybrid between corrective exercise and just hardcore powerlifting, strength and conditioning. Like you're going to get strong, but you're going to move correctly. That was the premise of Dark Side Strength. And as I was in PT school, he and I talked about just collaborating. Uh, you know, working in the same gym, video, seminars. And so that's what we did. I came back to Louisville. Louisville is how we pronounce it there. <laughs> right. And, and we, we started a place together. and We started doing these things. During that time, a little bit before that, when I was still in PT school, Ryan met Chad Wesley Smith, the jug, the yeah. juggernaut, yeah. at a seminar in Ohio. Okay. And so those two were linked up. Ryan was actually the first kind of like mobility slash movement guy for Juggernaut Training Systems. Oh, okay. He was writing for them. He was doing a little bit of a kind of webinar stuff, online coaching. I graduated from PT school and met Chad through Ryan at a seminar, at a weekend seminar in the Midwest. Chad was in, Chad was in town visiting Brandon Lilly, I believe, and the other, another powerlifter for JTS. Okay. And so I met Chad. And... He had asked me, he knew I was a physical therapist and he knew I was in with Ryan and the whole performance thing. And I would say over the course of the next six months, you know, he would ask me to kind of come, will you come coach at the seminar? You know, will you help with the seminar? And that turned into, will you write for the, for the website? You know, will you do a video here? Will you do this kind of this Q and a here? And it, it turned into something like, now I want you to present at this seminar. I want you to be the keynote guy. You know, I want you to write these articles that I, that I have had been posting on JTS and fast forward, Chad and I are very, very good friends now. And I've moved to Southern California where he's based out of, and we now are in the same facility. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, there's a, we just opened, man. It's been, I just moved to Southern California four months ago and that's about how old this, this building is. Half of it is a CrossFit gym. The other half is juggernaut training systems headquarters. It's the hub. Up to this point, Juggernaut had just been an online educational entity, but now there's, now there's a home, and I have 1,200 square feet of, of clinic space attached to that very same facility, and so it's amazing. Wow. Uh, yeah, awesome, it's unbelievable. Man. I mean, that's what I had been doing in Louisville with Louisville with yeah. Ryan <laughs> is I had, you know, I had this office space within these gym, gyms and facilities, and I, he and I were doing our thing, and I was seeing people and Etc. But now it's it's on a much grander scale, uh, and it's with Juggernaut. That's awesome. So I met Chad this year, actually January 2015, down here in South Florida. He did a Juggernaut seminar, and uh, mm. great, great guy. I mean, I, I learned a ton in the workshop. I mean, I've been yeah. really into the Juggernaut thing now for a while. So he's he's really amazing. And we talk about a guy who's who's accomplished a lot in a few short years. He's no he's maybe a year older than me. I think. And he's built this, I mean, yeah. empire. Yeah. Uh, I'm still the, the dark side thing. Ryan and I still do that. You know, it's kind of a, our own little, our own little niche. It's this movement. It's this hybrid. It's exactly what we had talked about. <laughs> right. You know, it's, right. it's this thing where we're going to, it's educational. You know, we have obviously videos and we do workshops and traveling seminars and it's all about movement and how to integrate it into strength and conditioning. And that's our little, our little niche. And then my the big umbrella for me is is juggernaut, and especially since that's where I am now, that's my 
facility. Nice. So it's just been incredible. So let me ask you, what's an article that people should check out on Juggernaut? I know you have several, but what's maybe an article or two? And I'll put a link for those in the show notes for the episode. Yeah, you know, everybody kind of asks about the squat. And I made an article outlining a movement prep correction for the squat. Now, the name of the article is the best damn squat mobility article, period. That's the actual name. I did not title that. I want that to be completely clear. That was the great, our editor at at Juggernaut is Greg Knuckles, and he's an amazing boy genius, and he changed whatever boring title I had, and he made it there, so no judgment. Uh, But that, I think that's a good one. People ask kind of my approach, and I really just outline a movement prep scheme and what, if I were to address different body parts, how would I would do that? And I always link videos. I have a YouTube channel, Q Hennick, my last name, H-E-N-O-C-H, and then the Dark Side YouTube channel. Between those two, 200-plus videos of uh, demos of exercises and explanations. And so I always link in these articles that I write a video with the exercise that I select. So I would, I would check that, that one out. Best damn squat mobility article, period. There are several that, for example, there's one seven habits of effective movement prep where I just kind of outline seven things that'll make your warm-up more effective. And instead of being a warm-up for just kind of circulation and lubrication or whatever, you're going to actually hone movement skill. You're going to learn movement. And I outline seven different tips on how to do that. And I have several articles like that. I think if, honestly, if you just Google Quinn Hennick juggernaut articles, every single one of my articles, there's a, there's a link to every single one of them. Wow. And there's another, yeah. So there's, I know that they're all in one little category in one spot and you can just Google that and boom, you've got every single one of them. There's another one that I had done a systematic review of sorts for patellofemoral pain. And it was part one. one Yeah. 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 And so I'm going to be working on, I'm working on part two, but in part one, I, try to get as much research of patellofemoral pain as I could and just translate it, right. <laughs> it you know, exactly. translate it into a language that yeah. resonates with me. Like, how am I going to use this research in my practice? And what does it mean for the athlete? What do these things mean? And then my part two is going to be based on my interpretation of the research. What's my corrective approach? And I want to do that. I want that to be a series for different dysfunctions. What, I've gotta, what I don't want is to be an internet doctor. And so I'm always very, very clear that nothing here is, gonna, is meant to be your rehab plan. Right, right. My, I, I really want to make it in my articles, like these are concepts that I want you to use to improve your movement in, a, in positioning. In a lot of cases, that will improve symptoms. But you need you still yes. need to get checked out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and uh, so and yeah, I would I would just kind of Google that. And as f- I think the videos, our YouTube channel, uh, the Q Hennick and the Dark Side, can be just as beneficial as some of those articles. Those videos are we do some voiceover stuff. We make sure some of the older Dark Side videos are kind of in this black dungeon, <laughs> which is not the best quality. But the, especially the newer videos that I've done, I've done some voiceovers. I make sure the angle is is clear. And it's good stuff. I know there's a couple videos that Chad posted the, on the Juggernaut YouTube called Why Stretching Isn't the Answer, Part 1 and Part 2. And in Part 1, I talk about my approach to screening and assessment, much like what we had talked about earlier, 
Right. And in part two, demonstrate how position can dictate mobility, whether or not you try to lengthen or stretch any type of tissue. So position is king. And in those two videos, I discussed that. What do you like to read to stay current, like as far as journals? Um, do you read? I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. So I, I'm uh, subscribed to all of them. I'm so, so I get all the emails from JOSPT, okay. Journal of Sports Physical Therapy, I, the American Journal of Sports Medicine. I get all of the abstracts. There's a bunch of, there's some manual, some international manual therapy journals that I'm subscribed to. I, I'm sure that I get 10 to 12 emails a week with all of the abstracts that come out. And so I just, I go through all of them. And if it's something that I think resonates with me, then I'll look at the, the article. If it's paid and I really want it, yeah. then I'll pay for it. Uh, but that's, yeah. So I, stay, I guess I stay current on all of them. Yeah. I just, I got to try to rapid fire because that stuff is really time consuming. Absolutely. As you, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a journal nut and, you know, <clears throat> looking at research myself and that's the thing. I'm glad you said that, like, you'll look at the abstracts and then if you want to know more, you dive into the paper because I, I actually think that's a big mistake a lot of people make um, is just citing something from an abstract and you really have to get uh, a, yeah. a, a bigger picture of what that study reveals, you know, and, and, and the patient population and how they did the technique or whatever it is. So the abstract is always a starting point. So. Oh, 1000%. The article, yeah. and there's so many times that I've bought an abstract or bought an article and the article is not what I wanted it to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm like, ah, damn it. Yeah. So definitely. And I'll cite articles in these blog posts that I write as well. And just know that I've actually read the articles. And so I, I also try to make it a point that if there are limitations, like just take this with a grain of salt. Yeah. You know, absolutely. the article is just a piece. It just yes. kind of yes. leads you in a direction. <laughs> absolutely. So if you had to say the single most important book that influenced your approach to performance, is there a mm. book that really had the, the major influence on where you are today? Is there one book? I guess that technically no, because there's not one. <laughs> I, like, I, had a, I had a couple here. All right. Uh, the Science and Practice of Strength Training, uh, Zatsyorsky, is lays out some of the principles of periodized strength training, specificity, overload, all of these things that you absolutely have to manage, these variables, volume, fatigue management. It's, a, it's pretty thick as far as content, but that was, that was huge for me. That was even before PT school. So I would say if there's one, just program, just programming, uh, that would be it. And actually, Dr. Mike Isretel of, of Juggernaut, he, he just came out with an ebook that's, I'll have to, I'm like halfway through it. I don't even remember the name I, of it. I have but it it's actually. It's, oh, it's you do? Scientific Principles of Strength Training. I have it right you here got on my it. desk. So it's fantastic. That, and then, so there's another one, Super Training by Vergashansky. Yeah. That's another one. And, but those two books are like references and they are so heavy. And they're also, they're, I think there's some things that are lost in translation as well as I read through them. But Dr. Mike's book, I think, is a really, really good intermediate that kind of takes some of that information and makes it a little bit more digestible. Yeah. All great, Move, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, the book movement yes. by Greg cook. Uh, he was, he's probably the most influential person that's on me. I've never met Greg, uh, okay. but his teachings, you know, I knew about the FMS long before PT school and it was like, I didn't know anything about the concepts that he was talking about, like all this rolling and crawling. I had no idea, Right. but 
but I wanted to learn more. And I actually spent probably as much time in PT school studying guys like him, Bill Hartman, Charlie Weingroff, all these guys. And I did probably studying for the test that I had the next day that I should have been more focused on. But I think the book movement, if you're trying to just learn this, this developmental sequence and this kind of neurophysiology, I think is a great, and how it applies to actual movement, I think is a really, really good starting point. Great books. I mean, all four of the ones that you mentioned, I have them all actually. I, I will say that uh, the science and practice of strength training is probably the easiest um, out of the four, I, I think. Oh, just 100%. So yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's one that I refer back to a lot. And I think if you compare it to super training, like it's, <sighs> there's so much there. You know, you, you can't read a lot at any one time. The science and practice of strength training is a little bit more digestible and more simplistic in the way that things are broken down. So that's a great book um, for any coach, athlete, serious fitness enthusiast, without a doubt. But all yeah. fantastic books, no question. And uh, Gray Cook, um, been fortunate to meet him once and, and had him on the show, of course. Um, he just thinks lightning fast, just, uh, just an amazing mind in movement and performance, obviously. I think, I don't know where I would be as far as, uh, I, honestly, without him, I don't know where. I think people, it's the same we talked about, like the knees out cue. Yeah. And then I think people take some of the, what is probably gray stuff from early nineties and like, ah, oh, you know, it's just gimmicky stuff with, you know, but this, what gray has done as far as trying to put performance and rehab into the same circle is, has been just groundbreaking. Excellent. Like everything that I know of that I've ever read or watched a video of has some type of influence from gray cook. If it's, if it's like rehab and training, I just don't think I've come across anything that he hasn't at least like, oh, that's, I think I've seen Gray talk about that, or I think I've seen Gray do that, or that looks like a modification of, of one of the FMS correctives. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. unbelievable, his influence. Absolutely. So you mentioned Gray. I'm wondering, who are the other uh, therapists or coaches that you look up to in the industry? Who's had the greatest impact on you? I think uh, Bill Hartman is another one from IFAS. He's in Indianapolis with Mike Robertson. I have actually had a chance to spend a little bit of time with him and he's just kind of the, the Yoda for me. Okay. He's, he's very, he's very influenced by the PRI school of thought, but regardless his view on the nervous system's influence on everything is just, it's just mind blowing some of the, his knowledge and his just thought process and any, any idea or any kind of, Anything that I have or, or question about, Bill Hartman's got the answer, or he's got a question for me. He's got the answer, but he won't give it. He, you know, he's one of those guys, and that's why he's his internship program. Anybody who's looking for a, an internship program in PT school, I would look at Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training, Bill Hartman, IFAS PT. It's going to be booked probably a year in advance. So if you want, if you want the best rotation that you've had, <laughs> wow. Uh, Call Bill Hartman, and, and he, he's just, he just pushes his guys. i just never seen anything like it. I'm a big fan. You know, I, followed, I had followed Charlie Weingroff for a while. Uh, his training equals rehab mantra really kind of sparked that, that for me as well because that's okay. his thing. Right. I mean, training equals rehab is, is Charlie Weingroff. I think all these guys, and he's a, he's a cook and boil disciple. You know, and his, I've had the opportunity to go to his seminar, and I – 
have learned a lot just of his philosophy of, you know, not everybody's broken. You know, go train. Figure out, figure out what they can do and train them. Get them big and strong. And that, that resonated with me because I think coming out or just being in PT school, I just had this notion that everybody was made of glass. You know, I didn't want to hurt anybody. And somebody came in, walked in with knee pain, and I was like, oh, you know, don't do this, don't do that. But wait, you just walked in here and you probably got in and out of your car and you're going to carry groceries and you're probably going to go to the gym. Oh, you're okay. Like, let's, tra- <laughs> let's train. And, and, and so he's been an influence on me. And then I've just had, just along the way, you know, some, some mentors from the company that I worked at in Kentucky, guys like James Escaloni and Chad Garvey, just experienced manual therapists and guys who have just been around the block. Uh, Coaching-wise, I think Sean Waxman is, a, as far as weightlifting and training, takes, takes the science, and there's actual literature in the sport of weightlifting for technique and programming, and he actually applies it into his gym, and I think that's really, really cool. You don't see that a ton. And uh, Dr. Mike Isretel is somebody who I've just recently got to spend a lot of time around. And if, if his stuff, like if I read something that he says, I know that that's what the, the literature says. He's just that kind of guy. Yeah. He's, he, and, he, and he makes it practical. He, he knows how to use it and to put it in a program. He just did a workshop with our interns here. And it was just an hour of him essentially teaching the interns how to program while they're making the program for him. And it turned out to be a perfect, and he just coaxed it out of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it, and it turns into this perfectly logical, periodized, all variables managed thing. And he's just amazing at that. And I've learned so much from his work just in, the, in a very short amount of time. And I think that's really jump-started my whole like training and knowledge yeah, he's a brilliant guy. I've heard um, a little bit of him recently, and of course, reading the book, The uh, Scientific Principles. So, uh, really, really a smart guy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I got a few more questions for you here. We're going to do this little rapid fire segment here and then um, have the final question, and then we'll, we'll pull everything together and, and wrap up. So, first question here is if you had 30 minutes to sit down one on one with anyone, who would you sit down with and, and what would you talk about or what would you ask them? 30 minutes to sit down with anyone. Oh, my goodness. That's a big one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Get you thinking here a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I honestly, if I could get Berkashansky or Zatsyorsky, uh, I want to know how to, I want to know what they did when people were hurt. Like, I want to know exactly. I want to know rehab from yeah. the from the from the seventies, and I, I want to know old school strength and conditioning rehab. Uh, and I want I want to kind of model. That's going to be. I mean, that's kind of been my thing too. Is is keeping it as simple as possible, and just you and your body, or maybe it's you and the barbell and dumbbells. How do we rehab you from an injury or a surgery when there's no special equipment? I think that that's what I would ask them and talk to them about. Wow, pick their brain that about. would be great. Um, I can't imagine how that conversation would go, <laughs> you know, with oh, either man. of those guys. But uh, it would be amazing, that's for sure. Awesome answer, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> that, good question. <laughs> you almost got me. Oh, man. All right, as far as your own training, what do you consider your greatest strength, and what's an area that needs to be improved? My greatest strength as far as my own training has definitely always been my, my kind of spring in one moment. 
My first, if it was a sprint, it was the it was the first thirty. My forty wasn't ever, was all that good, but man, that that first twenty or thirty, I was I was out. Okay. Uh, my my first, you know, I was, I was always I had a, a decent vertical. I always had the spring. When it comes to the sport of weightlifting, I can get under the bar pretty fast. Like everybody's, oh, you're fast. What I don't do is extend my hips at the top. I don't I don't finish, right? Okay. I don't. Uh, I'm also not very strong. My top end strength, my deadlift, and my squat are nowhere near some of the guys in my weight class. Uh, and then I rely on my speed, and it only gets me so far, right? And I just kind of sometimes I pick up these bad habits. So my biggest thing is I need to kind of take a step back, focus on my technique, and get stronger. The technique, if you hone the technique and you get stronger, then you will lift more weight or you will run faster. You, don't, you have to sprint to get faster, but if you just keep your technique sprinting technique exactly the same and you get stronger, then that's going to make you sprint faster. You're going to be able to produce more force. It's the same in if your sport is snatch and clean and jerk. If your technique stays exactly the same and you get squat and deadlift more, you're going to snatch and clean and jerk more, period. And that can go with anything, jumping, right? And so my, my biggest weakness, I think, I don't program for myself, thank goodness. Colin Burns, <laughs> who's a weightlifter himself at the, at the OTC, the Olympic Training Center, programs for me. Okay. Otherwise, everything that I do, I would just do the power variations, and I would do singles and doubles. Uh, I, need wow. to, I need to get work capacity, and I need to get just straight up stronger, period. So here's a follow-up to that before yeah. the third question, but uh, where would you rate strength on a scale of 1 to 10 in importance? For... In general, or for a specific sport or athlete? Let's answer both. Let's actually say in general, and then also for sports-specific performance. I think in general, it's a 10. Okay. Because it's, it's relative, though. So strength for what? Like, functional is kind of this taboo term, but functional just means that you can do what you want to do and have to do safely, right? And so right. strength, if you're 70 years old, is a relative to strength for me. But... Aerobic capacity and endurance is not the highest contributor to function or non-function in the elderly. It's muscle mass, right? right, right. And muscle, muscle mass equals strength. Yep. And so that's, that's king. In the sport of, in any performance sport, if you can produce more force, then you're going to perform better. That doesn't make your technique better. You right, still have to right. learn the sport skill. But everything in a vacuum, if you're stronger... If you produce more force, then you're going to do what you do better. The stronger athlete is the better athlete. That's what you're saying. In, in a vacuum. Yes. Now, I don't want to this. I don't, this is a real hot topic because that's what everybody's <laughs> a super hot topic. But I, I haven't seen anybody necessarily argue with that point. Yeah. Everything's the same. The stronger guy wins. Got it. Final question is, uh, what makes a coach exceptional? What's the quality? What's the one thing that makes a, a great coach? Willing to change, I think, with our industry, and especially in physical therapy and the current physical therapy and strength and conditioning research, which is not very good when it comes to actually trying to get people better, we know, we know very little. We have theories, right? And so every, you know, every five, ten years, we find that some of the stuff that we had been doing 
for the past few years probably wasn't doing anything. Or maybe it was, maybe it was, there was something better. Or maybe it was actually doing harm. And that's why those two patients never came back. And I think that just being entrenched with so much knowledge now, it's very overwhelming. But just being able to try something new. Yeah, yeah. Being able to change something that you've been doing for so long. It doesn't have to be permanent. And you don't have to change everything. But you should be evolving. If you're doing the exact same thing that you were doing five years ago, you're, you're not exceptional. Would you say that most coaches are evolving and, and growing? I mean, I think it's... I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I've just seen, I've seen it the other way. Where someone is rigid and inflexible. School, there's plenty yeah. of old school principles that are right. relevant now, but right. I, I've just seen the difference between coaches who are willing to, to try new things and coaches who aren't. Yeah. And there's, there, that's the difference between exceptional and not. Of course, there's other traits, but yep. Yep. I think that's huge. Cool. So where do people go to uh, find you online, connect? Like, so I know you're – obviously, we talked about the juggernaut and dark side strength. What about social media, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, if you want to connect with me directly, it's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm, that's me behind the keyboard or behind the phone. <laughs> I don't have anybody doing that for me. And, so if, and I'm very accessible with that stuff. I try to answer every question that I get. I, I can't guarantee that I'll be within a – day or two or a week, but definitely if, if you want to connect Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I'll absolutely uh, do whatever I can to help you out. Awesome. Final question. What's the big action, the one action that listeners can take after hearing this interview here today? I would say get on the ground and move around a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And as silly as that sounds, Whatever your your next gym venture is, I want you to go on I don't, I don't care if you go on on my YouTube. Go in, in YouTube Supine Abs or Supine uh, Correction Drill and do one drill in Supine. That's on your back. You're laying on your back. Anything. I don't care what it is. Rolling, crawling, moving your arms, moving your legs. And then I want you to do something in sideline. We're talking, we're gonna do one drill in each position. Something in sideline. And again, just YouTube the word sideline or YouTube sideline Quinn Hennick. Something will come up. <laughs> and do, literally, yeah. uh, we yeah. have that's, that's as easy as it's going to be. One drill in quadruped. Okay, that's hands and knees. And that can either be hands, knees, and the, your feet or behind you. So that's actually six points of contact. Or you can lift your knees. So hands and feet. One drill in quadruped. And I want you to do one drill in half kneeling. And then one drill in tall kneeling. And then I want you to stand up and I want you to see how you feel. If you feel a little bit more tied together, all you did was influence the nervous system in some way. You learned how to move the, the same way that an infant moves through these same positions over the course of months and learns how to move. So that's what I would challenge somebody to do. Get on the floor and move around. Great advice. Love it. <laughs> I had a follow-up question to that, actually, and I just lost. Uh... Oh, so the question was actually, so rolling and crawling, you're, you're a big fan of doing those things. Huge. Okay. Huge fan. Perfect. Neural resets. Yes. And... Oh, uh, original strength. Check that. I have no <laughs> ties to anything. That's a, that's, there's a book called Original Strength. There's a YouTube channel. If you want to learn all these uh, 
kind of ground-based resets, that's a great, great resource. Yeah, I recommend it all the time. I mean, I really Good. do. It's super simple. One last question about that, third follow-up or second follow-up, yeah. whatever it is. When do you like to do that? So around training, is this uh, pre-training, post-training? What, what's your preference for that? You, it's usually always at least something is pre. Okay. I very rarely, myself included, very rarely go straight to my training implement, be it a barbell or, or whatever for me. It's always usually some type of ground-based movement prep that I prescribe and for me. I think that intermittent in training can also be very effective. Like let's say you're warming up for a back squat and during your lower sets, your lower percentage work set or warm-up sets, you can do a set of squats and then you can go and do some uh, like quadruped rocking or some crawling or, or some, you know what I mean, some type of uh, front foot elevated split squat drill to still reinforce the position, you're just greasing the groove of the squatting pattern. And then once you get up to your top sets, your heavy working weights, then you just rest during your normal rest periods, like normal, right? But you should feel more tied together, like the squat pattern is just coming naturally. You can do that same thing with a, a hinge or any type of overhead work. You can do a corrective, and I call anything that is correcting something or improving movement a corrective exercise. You can do something in between. I think the rolling is a great reset for after training as well. As we talk, usually training equals a bilateral stance with a symmetrical implement, right? And so after training, we want to kind of undo some of those patterns that we get stuck in. And so any type of crossing midline or rotational exercise is a really great way to reset the system and not feel like you're stuck in the squat rack when you're walking out of the gym. Because I get that feeling sometimes. Right. And I'll just do like a, a supine cross-crawl drill or a standing cross-crawl or some type of rolling. And all of a sudden, I just feel a little bit more tied together and, yeah, yeah. and feel good. Super simple. Super yeah. simple, man. <clears throat> Quinn, this has been great. Um, I'm going to actually say that this has been a mind-blowing interview. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that we covered here that you covered that you talked about. And I'm going to encourage you people to go back and, and re-listen to this so that they can really understand everything and absorb all the great things that you shared with us here today. So thank you so much. It's been totally awesome and uh, appreciate it, man. Well, man, I, I really appreciate you having me on. This is You're right. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> you got it. All right, guys, if you are still here, I appreciate you uh, staying here all the way to the end. I hope you got a ton of value out of that great interview session with Quinn. Uh, thank you for listening this week. I've got many new great guests, topics, and interviews coming your way on the show, so stay tuned for that. And I'll see you next week on the Ardella Training Podcast. Until then, take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.